Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I'm going to explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Ukraine and Russia trade blame for missile strike on train station in Donbass. Ukraine says at least 50 people were killed at the station, which was being used to evacuate civilians. For insight into this, let's turn to my first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So on Friday, a missile struck a crowded train station in the Ukrainian city of Kramastruk, a city in the Donetsk oblast in the eastern Donbass region. According to Ukrainian authorities, at least 50 people were killed and the crowd was mostly women and children trying to flee the area. And now Ukraine and Russia are trading blame for this attack. Mark, it, it just doesn't make sense to me that Russia would attack a city in Donetsk when Russia has been protecting people in the region. The protection of those people is one of the reasons why uh, Russia has intervened in Ukraine. Help me out. That, to me, just on the face of it, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you're you're looking for motivations, uh, you know, uh, for accusations that that you're right uh, do not line up. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Kramatorsk is uh, a city uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, right now, it is in the center of uh, a, a Russian. Uh, military cauldron, right? Kramatorsk, the nearby uh, city of Severodonetsk or northern Donetsk, are um, still controlled by Ukrainian forces, and there is a very large concentration uh, of Ukrainian military forces that were poised uh, for uh, conflict with the areas of the Donbass that were outside of Kiev regime control uh, when when the conflict started. They are still there. They're heavily fortified and dug in. And uh, for the last month and a half of conflict, Russia has been pinning them there while it makes advances from the south and north to envelop them and try to either force their surrender or or use long range artillery uh, stuff uh, to to neutralize, try to make them leave the fortifications, um, as as uh, you know we have seen previously in the eight years of conflict um, in eastern Ukraine. Although uh, previously it was uh, done primarily by the Donbass forces against the Kiev regime forces. Uh, Kramatorsk is uh, in the midst of evacuating large uh, numbers of civilians uh, from the area um, by train. Uh, is 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 one of the, uh, the the most frequent routes because this is poised to become a very big, very heavy, and very decisive conflict, and it is almost of a surety that this area will come under heavy uh, artillery uh, fire, uh, aerial strikes, and so on. So um, it should be 
in both sides uh, good interests to get as many civilians out of the way as possible. Um, but um, here we have a situation where a Tochka-U ballistic missile, which is a Soviet-era missile, was fired and landed uh, basically uh, in the center of the train station in the middle of the day, causing large amounts of civilian damage. They were loaded with cluster munitions, which means they were designed not to destroy infrastructure or something, but simply to cause as many casualties as possible. Mm -hmm. um, the Tochka-U missile has been out of service in Russia since 2019. Um, when it was uh, replaced by the Iskander, a, a much more accurate missile. Um, and besides the statements from the Russian Ministry of Defense, uh, we also have conversation from uh, the ISS uh, Military Balance, which, uh, according to their own website, the Tochka-U has been out of service in Russia. Now, they still do have stockpiles of them. Um, uh, that is almost of a surety. But there is no sign that they have been in active use in the Russian military uh, during the course of this conflict for of a certain and, and, and not before either. There has been no previous use. And we know it was a Tochka-U because the booster stage of this missile landed uh, as it is designed to do. Uh, before the warhead, uh, it separates. The, the booster uh, is supposed to trail along a little bit behind and fall short of the impact site. Now, Ukraine, uh, the Kiev regime, still does use Tochka use, and they have quite a lot of them. At the starting of the conflict, according to outside military assessments like the military balance, they had some 90 launchers and some 900 Tochka U ballistic missiles in active service and we have seen them use them we have seen kiev regime fired tochka u missiles um hit donbass hit the center of donetsk just a few weeks ago in what was obviously a, an attack designed to kill as many eastern ukrainian uh, civilians as possible because there was no uh, military uh, uh, targets around the western mainstream media simply ignored the incident because it was the wrong Ukrainians being killed by the wrong side in the conflict, and so they simply don't report on it. And so anyway, we have seen multiple Tolchko use fire. And it has to be said that this has actually been going on for the last eight years of conflict since the last legitimate democratically elected uh, Ukrainian government was overthrown in 2014. The people of Donbass have long been being hit by Tolchko use fired by the Kiev regime. And what goes even further, there's two further pieces of evidence that point towards this other than, you know, simply being in service. One is the trajectory of the missile using uh, the open source intelligent, the placement of the booster, which is designed to fall short of the missile. It seems clear that they, the missile had to have been fired from the southwest at a distance of about 120 kilometers. Well, there, of course, are only Kiev regime forces and Kiev regime forces that also happen to have the launchers used to fire Tochka use. Furthermore, the uh, serial number on this uh, missile that was fired is clearly just 15 points up in a, uh, a serial list 
of missiles that have previously been fired by the Kiev regime at Donbass, uh, one in 2015 and one since then. So even the serial numbers match up with uh, in a sequence of the serial numbers from previous Tochka use that the Kiev regime has fired. Furthermore, on top of the booster, uh, as is often the case in, in such military conflicts, the fires sent a message, right? The message was written in Russian, and it says, for the children, right? Um, now, it just so happens that several other missiles fired by the, the Ukrainian um, a neo-Nazi, the Kiev regime neo-Nazi death squad, the right sector, have been photographed. They've photographed themselves firing uh, missiles with this uh, particular expression written in Russian on them. And it just so happens that in an area where this missile was likely fired, 120 kilometers uh, to the south-southwest, Dobropil, there is a section of um, right sector fighters that, you guess it, also have launchers of the type used to fire the Tochkuyu. So I'm afraid that despite the Western mainstream media reporting immediately that was Russia, because it must have been, it seems quite clear that it was the Kiev regime's own far-right forces that fired the missile. The only question remaining is, did the missile malfunction? Was it meant to actually hit a military target and fall short? Mm. Or was it an intentional attack because it is long known that the people of East Ukraine have never approved, right? You know, whether you're taking a look at the actions in the, uh, you know, original uh, rebellion against the new regime uh, that seized power in 2014, Krematorsk and Slavyansk, this was the area where the uprising actually first began. Right. Slavyansk uh, nearby city was actually the first area taken over. So this was actually the heart of the Donbass uprising until it was taken over by the Kiev regime. And there is no love lost between the civilians here and the Kiev regime's far right forces that have been brought in to um, uh, control them. So the, uh, there is a question that if it was fired deliberately, was it done so? by the Kiev regime itself, the Ukrainian uh, uh, Ministry of Defense, or is this a case, uh, another case, of the Kiev regime's out-of-control uh, far-right military forces that are, uh, you know, not fully subject uh, to Zelensky's uh, commands and have proven that in person uh, before when they confronted him and refused to follow his orders uh, when he first assumed office. Uh, is it them acting on their own uh, to try to further, you know, uh, demonize uh, Russia in uh, attempt to uh, bring uh, NATO into the conflict or simply to lash out at the people that they would prefer to use as human shields between them and the um, Donbass forces and the Russian military forces moving to encircle them? There's another story. Russia appoints new general to oversee Ukraine, quote unquote, invasion. Russia has appointed General Alexander Dvornikov, who commands Russia's southern military district and, quote, has a lot of experience, end quote, from Russian operations in Syria to oversee the war in Ukraine. 
first of all, how valid is that? And there are those in the West that are writing that this is an indication that uh, President Putin has had to make a shift in command because this is not going the way that President Putin wants it to go. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that that is fairly accurate to a degree. I mean, it is often said that, you know, uh, you can set all the, you know, it's a, a maxism of military strategy that you uh, can and should make all the preparations that you can, but understand that the best laid plan will uh, become defunct as soon as the first engagement with military forces. And while in the beginning of this conflict, there were essentially uh, four different um, uh, drives, right? Four different fronts, if you will, uh, from the Russian military intervention in different sections of Ukraine, uh, from from the south, uh, from the east, uh, from the northwest, and and from the north down to Kiev, um, and uh, as the conflict has go gone on, um, because of areas where there were more success than others and the strategies were real evaluated as as the intervention went on, there has basically been a a focus on the military campaign in the the east for both military and for political reasons um the uh general that is set to take over total command of the different fronts it makes perfect sense uh one he's higher ranking uh than the other military generals uh, that that have been in control of their own fronts. He has had the most success in this intervention thus far. He was in control of the southern front, where Russia has made its greatest and most unquestioned uh, advantage uh, advances. And he does have a lot of military experience and also a, a record of success from the Russian military intervention in Syria as well. So for a lot of reasons. Uh, it makes perfect sense, um, and it's it really only a spin that is being put on this uh, by the Western media to make it out to be some type of desperate thing when it really is nothing of the sort. It's just practical reality, and seeing that we got to we got to go, uh, we got to make some adjustments here. Yes. I mean, that happens in every single military uh, uh, intervention and conflict, um, you know, whether we're talking about the Russian military uh, intervention in Ukraine or the U.S. military invasion of Iraq back in 2003. They adjusted their playbook, their plans uh, several times when meeting stiffer resistance than they faced as well. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
The Postal Magazine has a piece entitled The Military Situation in the Ukraine, and it's written by Jacques Baud. And Jacques opens, It is therefore not a question of justifying war, but of the understanding what led us to it. He continues, I noticed that the quote-unquote experts who take turns on television analyze the situation on the basis of dubious information, most often hypotheses erected as facts, and then we no longer manage to understand what is happening. This is how panics are created. I found this analysis to be incredibly, incredibly clear and well worth the read. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Jacques Baud continues, the problem is not so much to know who is right in this conflict, but to question the way our leaders make their decisions. And I'd like for you to speak to to this analysis because what I am finding is people have are victimized by binary thinking. It's got to be either one way or the other. America good, Russia bad, Biden good, Putin evil. And uh, as China has said, there's a history here. There are realities here that, unfortunately, are not being articulated in mainstream media, but that vacuous space of lack of information is capturing people here, and they just don't get it. Daniel Lazar. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's one of the real, the real problems in this whole instance. So, you know, so there's the wars that are going on now. Seven weeks, I guess it is, or six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my sense is the the, the chattering classes, the, the top ten percent, are consumed by the war. Uh, my sense is the the, the re- remainder of the population is not consumed by the war. They have no idea what's going on. They really don't care. They are distrustful of what they hear on TV, and they are more concerned with inflation. You know, uh, and uh, you know, and other economic problems than they are with the the war in the distant Ukraine. Um, and I think that American people, and I think they suspect, and I think they're absolutely correct, that the American people are being fed half the story. And as a result, they are getting a very distorted picture of what's happening um, in that part of the world. Uh, and I, I'm not going to argue that 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 Putin is good uh, because I think it's way too simplistic. And I, I don't support the, the invasion, um, certainly. But I do believe that what Americans are not being told, not, not, not being informed about, is how NATO and the U.S. really laid the basis for this war. And how the war, and how the U.S., I think even no less importantly, how it overstepped itself. And how this war, there's no clear end game on either side of the conflict. And that's really bad news because there's, when there's no end game, there's no clear way of ever ending this conflict, uh, which means that it could drag on for a long, long time and in the process do really bad damage 
to global politics and global economics. There is a lot of analysis, which I think is quite solid, that indicates that the United States and many of the NATO allies don't want a quick resolution to this conflict and that even to the point of the United States is intentionally getting in the way of a resolution to this conflict. I mean, going back to uh, President Putin saying before this whole thing started, look, if you just implement the Minsk Accords, we can solve this problem. Yeah, although there are problems with the Minsk Accords. But yes, I don't think the U.S. ever really wanted a, a, a resolution to this problem. But it's not clear what the U.S. ever really wanted, except the plan that, that big new Brzezinski laid out in his 1997, the bestseller, in which there would be regime change in Moscow, the breakup of Russia, and then the United States would then take advantage of that and zoom right into Central Asia, seize control of its energy supplies and other, other natural resources, and then go for the big enchilada. Is that what, they, is that what Nixon used to call it? Right. Uh, which, is, which is Russia via from the, from the, uh, the West. Uh, pushing into a Xinjiang uh, and then somehow using that to pressure China into obedience, maybe, you know, sever, break off its, its Western provinces, reduce China to a rump state firmly under American control. That was the strategy that big uh, Brzezinski laid out in 1997. Uh, and I think probably some people in Washington still have the hope that maybe the moment for that has arrived. What about uh, Baud's uh, discussion about pro-Russian? Uh, he talks about the eight years talking about separatists or independence from Donbass. He says this is not true. The referendums conducted by the two self-proclaimed republics were not referendums of independence, but of autonomy and self-determination. He also talks about the qualifier pro-Russian suggests that Russia was a party to the conflict, which was not the case, and the term Russian speakers would have been more honest. He said these referendums were conducted against the advice of Vladimir Putin. Talk about that because, first of all, if you ignore 2014 and the United States overthrow of the government, which Western media does, and then you, and then you don't understand the dynamics in the East— then you're really walking in the dark with, with scissors and, and you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I, is, it, is, it the, is it that the Western strategists don't understand it or they don't want to understand it? And they don't want uh, us I to mean, understand the, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the trouble with the Ukraine is the, is the you know, some nations are, 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 are um, carved out too small, like Korea, as an example, if there are large Korean speakers, you know, in northern China, for example, and even parts of Russia. Uh, so the state of Korea itself is actually a small part of the larger uh, Korean community. And similarly, some states are, are drawn too large. And Russia, and the Ukraine is an example, where they have, I guess, stretches from the, the, the Donbass in the east to Lvov in the west. It's 900 miles. Uh, linguistically, it's not Far from uniform, because the eastern portions are mainly Russian-speaking, the western portions are Ukrainian, and politically, 
it's extremely divided uh, in that the eastern portions are oriented towards Russia and the western portions are oriented towards towards uh, towards Poland. Um, and there's not much by way of a gravitational center. So so when this nationalist uh, revolution took place in Kiev, which was had its main basis of support in the in the Ukrainian West in Lvov, they started pushing through policies that were deeply alarming to the Russian population. I mean, uh, policies that could fairly be described as well, if not racist, but certainly linguistically chauvinist. And uh, and this upset um, Russian speakers in the East as much. If a, if a far-right government in the United States were to impose policies that were explicitly racist, that would upset a lot of racial minorities and their sympathizers in the United States. So the same thing happened. <clears throat> and then you had a revolt in Kiev, a national-led revolt, and that sparked a parallel you know, Russian-led revolt in the East. It wasn't, it wasn't Putin's doing. This revolt was, by all appearances, quite spontaneous and really the mirror image of the of the Euromaidan uh, uh, rising in Kiev. But they don't want they, the strategists in Washington don't want us to understand that because that sort of makes the situation more morally complex than it really is. There's a piece in Responsible Statecraft entitled Military Do-Somethingism is Running Amok in Washington. There seems to be a growing confidence that the U.S. can join this conflict without running into unacceptable risks. And let me quickly say before you respond that this to me is eerily reminiscent of post 9-11. I had people calling into my show saying, I don't care who we attack. We just have to attack somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what it reminds me is the Balkans in the '90s. Okay. I mean, the the uh, the um, you had you know you had you had national conflicts breaking out, and in the West, uh, among many liberals, in fact, there was there there was the growth of do somethingism, um, and we got to intervene. We got to intervene, even though America had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and and the Balkans were as foreign to. To, to the Washington strategists, as I don't know, as as Western China is, to the Western China is, but they went blundering in. Um, they chose sides really carefully, and they basically chose sides on the basis of who was friendly to Russia and who was friendly to to the West, including Germany, and then they backed those sides, and they then you know morally built them up into the good guys while demonizing the pro-Russian forces. And as a result, you know, uh, the the situation was made worse. Serbia was bombed in 1999. uh, And and as a consequence of the bombing, uh, ethnic fratricide actually multiplied rather than diminishing. So the U.S. went in there, felt it had to do something, and it took a bad situation and made it much worse. And that seems to be the situation that's going on in the Ukraine, where the U.S. is also blundering in, encouraging really dangerous forces, and it's taking a bad situation and making it a good deal more worse and a good deal more threatening 
to the uh, to the international polity. Daniel Lazar, incredibly well said. Thank you very much, as always. Thank you. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Israel hopes U.S. position on Iran deal could sink talks. Israel's prime minister's office expressed pleasure at the latest moves on the Vienna talks on the Iran nuclear deal, something which is virtually unheard of for the dour Israeli government, which tends to oppose anything that involves diplomacy and Iran. They're happy because after several days of back and forth, it looks like the U.S. is refusing a proposal to remove the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, the IR. GC from the terror blacklist. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. He is Laith Marouf, as always, Laith. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. First, talk a bit about the significance of this terror blacklist, uh, because a lot of people don't know for as highly regarded and revered and loved as former South African President Nelson Mandela uh, was and remains, that President George H.W. Bush shook hands with the South African national leader at the White House in Washington, D.C. on June 25, 1990. But Madiba was not removed from the blacklist until 2008. Of course, we we also have a, a more recent example of the United States having uh, talks with the Taliban while they were still and they are still on the terrorist list. So this was before, of course, the shameful withdrawal of uh, the United States from Afghanistan um, after their defeat. Now, uh, you, many of your listeners, if they follow our segments here, would know that I've always said uh, I think it's very unlikely that there will be a new deal. And um, what the United States has been attempting to do with this uh, return to negotiations with Iran uh, was to uh, try to to absorb Iran's actions in Western Asia and delay any major developments of change in the military battlefield in West Asia uh, while it was preparing, as we see right now, for the confrontation with Russia in the Ukraine. So, um, you know, now as, as things are becoming, the deadlines have passed, uh, things are you know, becoming impossible for the United States to just delay, uh, they will come out with these statements as we see the Zionist uh, claiming a win uh, by convincing the United States not to uh, remove the Revolutionary Guard from the terrorism list. And we know, of course, the Revolutionary Guard in Iran are the core 
um, military establishment uh, that runs the military structures of the country. Meaning, you, if you have them onto the terrorism list, it means that all of the military apparatus of Iran is under uh, this uh, categorization, and Iran will not accept any deal that will continue to mark their, you know, their sacrifices over the last. Uh, 40 years since the revolution um, by these the revolutionary guard to uh, guard their independence and sovereignty. You know, it strikes me that this really uh, strikes me as odd. The, um, the, the administration will not agree to Iran's demand to remove the IRGC from the foreign terrorist organizations, even though this could very well put the, the deal in jeopardy. So this may, to your point, how much of this is the U.S. looking for a reason not to re-sign the deal? This, I think, is a uh, added condition that it was not in the original agreement. I could be wrong there. Please correct me if I am. And this also seems to be Israel weighing in and flexing its muscle as it relates to the United States position, and Israel is not a signator to the original deal. Yes, and the IRGC were added to the terrorism list by uh, President Trump uh, as he withdrew from the deal and in preps for his assassination of General Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, basically. Uh, So, what we have here is clearly the United States refusing to remove uh, any of the added sanctions and harm that was done to Iran after the withdrawal from the uh, deal. So Iran has made it clear that anything that was added after the deal in terms of sanctions and and limitations and labeling of their uh, government in, in such manner has to be removed and so we the two countries can have normal relations. Ultimately, this is the only way you can have normal relations with somebody if you're not calling them a terrorist and calling their army and their special forces as terrorists. Um, and so uh, what do we have here? It's, it's clear that the United States never wanted to return under Obama, sorry, Obama number two, uh, Trump. Um, look, I'm mixing all the American presidents. <laughs> They're all the same for us here in, 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 the, in the Orient. Uh, so President Biden clearly was just uh, playing Iran uh, to delay any actions in Western Asia uh, with this supposed possibility of having a deal ultimately to so they can concentrate on the confrontation with Russia and and I think and now uh, because things are moving uh, much faster uh, than expected uh, in terms of the developments in uh, Russia uh, now Iran is in the next few weeks if there's it's clear to it that there will be no return to the deal um, then we should be expecting major developments on the battlefield in West Asia. 
And you you just mentioned General Soleimani and the assassination of him. I just want you to quickly make the point that he was lured to his death under the pretext of uh, negotiating and because he was working towards the fight against ISIS as well, if my memory serves me correctly. He was lured by, I think, the Saudis to a meeting that resulted in his death. So he was actually working in the best interest of the United States as the United States claimed to be fighting ISIS and that that was the pretext that was used to lure him to his death. Is that is that correct? Yes, and it was also, you know, negotiations between Iran and the Saudi government to normalize relations and um, settle any of the conflicts in the region. So this was in the Soleimani wasn't only responsible for the defeat of uh, ISIS. He was working towards ending all the wars in the region and finding a way to, uh, you know, have these Gulf states, uh, you know, separate between their regional policies and their international policies. And if he was alive today, I doubt that there will be still a war in Yemen, for instance. And, uh, you know, so he is he was assassinated for his amazing uh, achievements of actual peace in the region. The United States wants only death and destruction in our uh, territories here. There's another story related to uh, the Ukraine that we're going to talk about later that says that, that the United States basically is standing in the way of of a peace agreement. And here's another example of the United States fanning the flames, fueling the fires instead of doing what it can do uh, to bring about peace, because it doesn't seem to be that that's what the United States is uh, is really interested in wanted, but I just wanted to wanted to make that point. Wanted to get now to the next story, which is uh, the Jerusalem Post reports rare daytime Israeli airstrikes targets northwest Syria. The airstrikes were carried out from over northern Lebanon, with Syrian air defenses responding to the strikes. Targeted sites near Misiaf in northern Syria. On Saturday, this is according to Syrian reports. Laith Marouf. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I was sitting on my balcony here on Beirut and I could uh, hear, um, and I was surprised because, you know, there's never been, as for as far as I've been here in Beirut, uh, an Israeli uh, Air Force attack in the middle of day. Uh, so that was surprising. And of course, the target is the facilities for um, the scientific development in the Syrian military. And this is the most important uh, complex where much of the uh, Syrian missile systems have been developed. And this uh, is part of a chain of uh, um, you know, engineering and production facilities that spans from North Korea to Iran to Syria that over the last 30 years were responsible for all the developments that we saw in the um, missile systems of North Korea, Iran, and Syria. And, and, you know, so the scientists that are there, because 
it's important for the listeners to understand this. This is you know, not a laughing matter when we talk about how much achievements the Syrian uh, engineering and uh, missile systems have ha- seen even under the conditions of the collapse of the Soviet Union and such. So since uh, 2015, there's been multiple attacks on this um, you know, reported to be Israeli Air Force uh, attacks, and there was an actual assassination uh, that happened of the director general, the, the, the you know the top scientist in the complex uh, that is remembered in Syria as a as a martyr. He was um, responsible for uh, adding technological adma- advancements on the. S-200s or the SAM-7, as, as, as some uh, military analysts would call them, to add to them guidance that uh, led to the uh, shooting down of uh, Israeli F-15s in uh, 2017. This is why this, um, this complex is a continuous target of Israeli attacks over the last six years. Is there any indication, because we're hearing, for example, that the um, that uh, Ansar Allah has been more successful in uh, targeted strategic uh, strikes against the the Saudis. We know that the the Iranian uh, missiles have become much more precise uh, in their targeting. Is there are there are there relationships or correlations here, or is this just an overall increase in in the science, in the engineering, and the technology in the region? Yeah, it's, it's all related because, as I was trying to explain to you, for the last 30 years, these, specifically Iran, North Korea, and Syria, have had co-development of all of this mm. missile programming mm-hmm. that we see. So Syria has all this uh, very advanced um, missile systems that have not been used because the battle uh, is against a militia, militias, the death squads that the United States have sent. It's not against uh, an army or a, a country outside yours. In the future war with the Zionists, yes, the Syrian government will be using these uh, missile systems. One important thing I would say is that uh, we're all uh, on the edge here waiting for the of you know firing back from Syria and Iran uh, because of the killing of uh, Iranian uh, officers a, f- a few a month and, and somewhat ago in the last attack on uh, Syria, and uh, I think uh, um, what will happen here is that Iran and Syria and even Hezbollah who have a count of uh, Hezbollah martyrs that got killed in Syria a year ago that are still, we're all still waiting for the retaliation to come. I think Syria, Hezbollah, and Iran uh, will not be initiating a response specifically right now mm-hmm. as Palestine is boiling and they will, so it will not diffuse any developments in Palestine. If the war starts from outside Palestine, it will diffuse any uh, intifada uprising in, in Palestine and direct the war to the outside. But we, the minute there will be an intifada and, a, and we are at the edge of it in Palestine, the retaliation from uh, Lebanon, from Syria, from Iran will come in that midst of that war. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening.
Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Macron set to face off against far-right Le Pen in French presidential election. French President Emmanuel Macron will face far-right candidate Marie Le Pen in a runoff election as they vie to lead France as the country's president. How significant is this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American historian who currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So following yesterday's election of 12 candidates, uh, Macron is expected to be the favorite in the runoff election, which is set for April 24th. The top two candidates from the most recent election, Macron and Le Pen, will move on to the runoff round. I think you said the last time we spoke, which was, uh, I think, Friday, that Le Pen does not necessarily have to win for her outcome to be significant. Am I right in attributing that comment to you? And if so, what is what are the most uh, recent developments say to you? Well, what it says to me is that the right-wing candidate, uh, Madame Le Pen, was able to gain traction by running on pocketbook issues. Mm-hmm. Inflation, for example, the rising price of a liter of gasoline at the pump, for example. And contrastingly, what was taking place is that the presence on the ballot of a candidate to her right, speaking of Eric Zamor, the chat show host from a popular television network, allowed Madame Le Pen to appear to be more reasonable Mm -hmm. and more like, pardon the expression, a a statesman. And I think that that helped to give her traction. And I should also say that many voters had not forgotten that she has been a critic of the European Union. And given the fact that the European Union is little more than the economic department of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, inevitably it seems to me that that helped her campaign. At the same time, the incumbent, President Macron, recall that he won five years ago. He was the new kid on the block. He had served in the Socialist Party administration of Francois Hollande, uh, his predecessor, uh, but that did not prevent him from running as a candidate who was, in his estimation, neither right nor left. And he was new, a shiny toy, but now he has five years to defend or rationalize or rebut And the ledger is not necessarily as positive as he would delude voters into thinking. And then there's the other point as well, 
which is an expansion of what I said a moment ago, which is that uh, Mr. Macron's uh, constant uh, involvement in this uh, debacle in Ukraine, I don't think won him any favors. And in fact, uh, I, I would like to see some serious investigation by a serious journalist who admittedly that's a, a rare breed, <laughs> at least in this century nowadays, because I'm beginning to wonder if this war is as popular amongst the electorates of the North Atlantic Bloc as the media would lead us to think. Certainly there is anecdotal evidence that it is not, particularly amongst the youth, the younger sector of the electorate, who will have to pay the price of the inevitable tax increases that will accompany uh, the fact that millions of refugees will have to be supported who are flooding out of Ukraine. And at the same time, even if you are a supporter of the military-industrial complex in France, and of course France uh, has a major military-industrial complex, you have to be scratching your head about the fact that their German ally has pledged to spend tens of billions of dollars in euros more on the military in coming years, supposedly because of the big bad wolf in Moscow. But it seems that the initial purchases will be from Lockheed Martin and other U.S. enterprises. And if you are a supporter of the military-industrial complex in France, you're wondering, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. I thought uh, Berlin and Paris were allies, comrades. So why aren't you buying uh, from your European allies? So that calls into question as well the platform of uh, Mr. Macron. And there's one more point as well. Uh, all these two candidates, Macron and Madame Le Pen, both got in the 20s. Uh, also getting in the 20s, let's say 20% or more of the vote, was the left-wing candidate, uh, Mr. Mélenchon. And if there was more than somnolence, amongst those who consider themselves to be radical in the United States, they would be lurching to analyze why it is that France, which had a revolution in 1789, and supposedly there was one here in 1776, and yet in this so-called revolutionary republic of the United States of America, uh, you're smoking your drapes if you think that anytime soon a candidate is left as Mélenchon, would get 20% of the vote. In fact, uh, my joke about Washington, D.C., where you're now sitting, is that in order to keep their heads above water, radicals masquerade as liberals, liberals masquerade as moderates, and only conservatives can display their true colors. Clearly, that's not the case in France, and obviously that should cause those who consider themselves to be perceptive, if not radical, to do an agonizing reappraisal of the founding of the United States of America. But alas, I don't think that that's in the cards, just as I don't think it's in the cards doing an agonizing reappraisal of the entire Cold War period, because the bottom line is that the United States spent trillions dislodging communists from power in Moscow and making sure that the path was smooth for their ouster. And now... As a result of that handiwork, we're on the brink of World War III. You would think that that would lead to a reconsideration of the previous historical epic. That's probably too much to ask, I'm afraid to say.
I wanted also to throw in the uh, the United States stealing the submarine deal from France uh, that was supposed to go uh, to uh, Australia, right? That's correct. Right. So that that was another another data point there. Macron urged French voters to unite against the far right. Le Pen is speaking to voters' dissatisfaction with inflation, high price of gasoline, security-related issues. So what I seem to see here is Macron running on ideology, Le Pen, to your point, running on very practical kitchen table issues. And in, in, in perilous times like these, it seems as though her message is going to resonate. Are there any parallels between what's transpiring in France and what happened here with the rise of Donald Trump? Well, clearly, and once again, this speaks to my previous point, because once again, many of our friends on the left, they convinced many of the unsuspecting that once these communists and those who were close to them were ousted from influence, then a truer radicalism, a truer socialism can emerge, but actually, Coincidentally enough, that only paved the way for the rise of right-wing populism as reflected in the ascension of Donald J. Trump, who, as you know, uh, intends on returning to the White House in 2024 or even sooner. If you follow the news about some of his supporters in Wisconsin and elsewhere Mm -hmm. seeking to invalidate the results of the 2020 election, excuse my chuckling because (laughs) the joke might be on people like me if they are able to convince uh, some wacky judge that they have a case. And I think it's also important to put this French election in the context of other tumultuous events that have unfolded in the last 24 to 48 hours. I'm speaking of the dislodging of Prime Minister Khan in Pakistan. My next point. Continue, sir. Recall that he claimed, and there is evidence to suggest, that he was the victim of a Yankee conspiracy. Uh, After all, says Prime Minister or former Prime Minister Khan, uh, he was in Moscow before the hinge moment of February uh, 24th, 2022, when you saw the intervention in Ukraine by Russian forces. He had a pre-existing relationship with the People's Republic of China. And in fact, if you look at the Cold War period, the lineup was basically Pakistan, China, U.S. lined up against Russia or Soviet Union and New Delhi. But now what's happening is that with the deterioration of relations between the U.S. and Beijing, uh, which is worthy of three hours of commentary, but let me just summarize by saying that if you look at the Wall Street Journal today on the back page, at least of the print edition, uh, there is an offhanded comment that the Chinese leadership is fearful that the United States wants to engage in regime change in China, believe it or not. And to that point, Hal Brandt, the so-called Henry Kissinger professor at Johns Hopkins University, within a stone's throw of where you're sitting, by the way, since their uh, international school is in Washington, mm-hmm. not in their home base of Baltimore, he says that the United States cannot avoid uh, going after both China and Russia simultaneously. 
<laughs> which is not only a fool's errand, but it's quite dangerous. But in light of the fact of this deterioration between Washington and Beijing, well, then Imran Khan, who refuses not only to break relations with Beijing, but then was trying to improve relations with Moscow, uh, he's thrown from the dark sled into the jaws of the awaiting wolves. And I think that what this bespeaks is the danger of the period we're now enmeshed in, whereby you're going to have a, a, a reverse of the domino theory. Recall during the Vietnam War, the theory was that the communists prevailed in Vietnam, soon they'd be in San Francisco, so you had to stop them in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Now, the reverse domino theory is that in order to gain hegemony over Russia and China, you have to dislodge allies who seemingly are easy pickings who are tied to Russia and China. And if you want to get a list of what that list, uh, get an idea of what that list might include, look at the 58 abstentions on the UN vote to expel Russia from the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. Look at the dozens of abstentions earlier uh, with regard to the vote castigating Russia for the intervention in um, Ukraine. And of course, look at the no votes as well. And so this is going to keep the CIA and the Pentagon quite busy, which then means that their budgets will have to be hiked into the stratosphere, which correspondingly means less spending on housing, more homelessness, less spending on food stamps, more hunger, less spending on education, more illiteracy, less spending on health care, more sickness. <sighs> Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Ukrainian President Zelensky accuses Russia of another war crime after train station bombing. Quote, attempts to hide Russia's responsibility for this and other crimes using disinformation and media manipulations are unacceptable, according to the European Union. Well, what does this mean going forward? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a U.S. Uh, former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98 was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. He is Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Ukrainian President Zelensky on Friday called the Russian rocket attack on a train station in eastern Ukraine a war crime amid reports that mass graves were discovered in a town west of Kiev. Uh, Scott, we opened the show with a uh, discussion with Mark Sloboda. And Mark was talking about the tracking, the trajectory of the missile, looking at the serial numbers on the missile and on the booster 
and the booster falling short, which is which it is designed to do, and that the serial numbers on the booster of the rocket are 15 numbers off of other rockets that have been traced back to the Ukraine. If Zelensky is calling for war crimes, when you point the finger at somebody, you got three fingers pointing back at you. <laughs> well, all of them are pointing, pointing back at him. Look, um, I, I did this for a living. <laughs> when, I, when I was a you know, during during the Gulf War, uh, I was heavily involved in the counter scud operation, uh, which means I'm very adept at uh, what it what what's required in um, detecting a missile launch, uh, predict predicting um, impact, um, and and recording trajectory uh, during combat conditions. Uh, as a weapons inspector in Iraq. Um, you know, I, I was the guy that led the investigation into um, forensically reconstructing Iraq's ballistic missile force. That means uh, going and getting the dead bodies, so to speak, from Israel uh, and from the, uh, the Gulf Arab states, and also digging up the dead bodies uh, in Iraq after the Iraqis blew up 100 of their missiles uh, and then buried the parts in the desert. We, you know, we dug them up and uh, did a very laborious reconstruction that involved um, in, you know, an investigation of all the serial numbers. We, we ended up taking those serial numbers back to Russia, to the factory that produced the Scuds, which was the Vodkins machine building plant. Guess which factory produced the uh, Tochka U, the Vodkins machine building plant. And then I worked with the Russian government to trace uh, the Scuds from their point of production um, you know, to their, uh, their, their final target, uh, their final uh, receiving point, uh, and all the documentation that's involved in that. And the Iraqis copied the, the Russian procedures for uh, receiving missiles, putting them in the storage, and then accounting for them when they, when they were fired. These are the same procedures that the Ukrainian government used. It's a long way of, tell, long way of telling you that um, please, please, please make me the lead investigator because there's no doubt what the outcome will be. Um, this this was a Ukrainian missile in possession uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces, fired by the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, which killed tragically the civilians at the at the train station. There is literally no other possibility, none whatsoever. Um, uh, Mark Slobodin is one hundred percent correct. When the missiles leave uh, Vodkins, they're, they're produced in batches, and uh, the serial number, the first two numbers, are ninety one. That's the year that the missile was produced. And then this, the number after that, which I think was 579 or something of that nature, represents the serial production of that missile uh, in that year. And, um, you know, so they're delivered in batches. So if you can show that the Ukrainian armed forces have been using missiles that are close to that serial production, uh, you have very strong circumstantial evidence that that missile was possessed by Ukraine. But again, we, we can answer this with absolute certainty if one is able to get a hold of the Russian documentation regarding production and ultimate disposition, and also the Ukrainian documents. Uh, uh, you know, these, these units were received. They were kept by a missile storage unit. Uh, when they're fired, there's this thing called the passport. That number has to be recorded. The disposition has to be recorded. There's all documentation because this is a round of ammunition that has to be maintained. You have to have maintenance records. And if something goes wrong, there's a contractual obligation by the producer to to resolve the issue. So you, you just don't let this missile out and about and, and not, not take care of it. All of this is documented very carefully 
The Iraqis did it, which is one of the reasons why we were able to get final disposition. And I can guarantee you with absolute certainty, the Ukrainians document this as well. One of the things that Mark said, he talked about the booster, uh, that they were able to get a hold of the booster because the way that this missile is designed, the booster falls short before the ordnance actually hits its target. And so, and that that's where a lot of the information about the projectile actually comes from. Can you speak to that? Sure. When the, when the Tochka U is fired, it's a single stage rocket with a separating warhead. So the booster will launch the projectile into its ballistic trajectory. And at some point, the, uh, the warhead will separate from the booster, uh, in which case the booster now is in unpowered flight, and it will proceed to come to, the, come to Earth in the same trajectory that it, it was flying. The warhead will continue on and hit the target um, you know, that, that it ultimately hits, uh, whether they intended to hit the train station or that was an accident. Who knows? But the booster will fall, and when it impacts the ground, uh, a couple things. One... The alignment of the booster will roughly allow you to shoot a reverse azimuth back to the point of origin. Now, mm-hmm. there's going to be a little bit of a, of variance a of error because because the booster might be shimmying um, just slightly, but it's not going to it's not going to depart from its principal axis of um, uh, you know, of trajectory. Two, the booster is the missile. I mean, that's where the missile serial. That's where the identifying feature. I think it's nine K seventy nine U, which is the you know the the designation of the Tochka U, uh, NATO SS-21, um, the, the, and also the, the, the serial production number of the missile hole. Um, now, when you break that missile apart, you know, there's going to be component serial numbers, too, that are, you know, can be traceable back to the factory. Because uh, and, and as, as they build the missile, you know, they, they, have, you know, they have a bin full of parts. Each one has a unique serial number. And when mm-hmm. that part is put into a missile, that's recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that booster is just a living, breathing piece of evidence that, um, that, that tells you who, who operated that missile. Now, in, you know, the, the, the other thing is that the Russians stopped using the Totsuka. You stopped, they, they retired it in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, now, people have said, well, they, you know, they could have brought it out of retirement. There's no evidence that Russia has denied that. Uh, there's no record of Russia using the Tochka U. Um, people have brought up film of of of, of Tochka U's uh, in in Belarus during the exercises in uh, December of 2021, saying this is proof. See, it's there with the Russian vehicles with the uh, with the V and the Z on it. Uh, except they're missing the point. Uh, that was a joint exercise, and the Tochka U's that were participating in that exercise were Belarusian Tochka U's. Um, the Russian government simply doesn't use the Totska use. They use the follow-on missile, the Iskander, or the caliber, um, you know, the, the sea-launched missile. So, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, the, the, the people who are supporting the Ukrainian line of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of analysis or assertions um, have no hard fact to back up their point. They're, 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 they're pulling at strings. They're desperate. They're drawing conclusions from inaccurate and incomplete information when the evidence is literally sitting in front of your face. It's that booster. It's that serial number. That serial number proves who owned the missile, therefore who fired the missile. According to the uh, Telegraph, 
full-scale NATO military force to defend borders, according to Jens Stoltenberg, the chief of NATO. He's revealing plans to deploy permanent military presence sufficient to repel a Russian invasion. Can you speak to that, please, Mr. Ritter? Because this, to me, is is insanity compounding insanity. Well, it's, it's Jan Stoltenberg reflecting... Um, what, what he believes to be the intent of NATO um, in the aftermath of Russia's operation, uh, ongoing operation in Ukraine. Um, the, the Polish government is very much behind this. Uh, the Polish government recognizes that its current military disposition is, uh, in, in re- after reflecting on what Russia is doing in Ukraine, is insufficient to, uh, to halt any would-be Russian invasion. Therefore, Poland has requested not only resources to um, to rebuild and, uh, and and re-equip and reorient their their military, uh, but for NATO to forward deploy resources onto Polish soil and indeed into the Baltics, um, capable of repelling a uh, you know any any ostensible Russian military um, offensive action. Um, but there's a couple things here. One, while Poland may be indicating a willingness to receive these forces, NATO has not agreed that this is indeed the strategy. Stoltenberg's statements do not reflect a consensus agreement on the part of NATO. So this still would have to go to vote. I think this will be something that will be brought up in June when there's a major uh, NATO summit, I believe, in Madrid. Um, and this this will be a, a, a hot topic. Two, <clears throat> who's going to pay for it? Because the forces they're talking about are primarily American. Uh, they want American heavy brigades permanently stationed in Poland uh, that could respond to any you know Russian attack. Um, but the you know uh, General uh, Walters, uh, the head of the uh, U.S. forces in Europe, testified before Congress, I believe, last week, and he said, well. We're not going to talk about this until June, <laughs> because by then we need you know, we think the Ukrainian situation will uh, be resolved one way or the other, and we'll have a better idea of what we're talking about here. Um, and, and one of the points they're going to talk about is, is Poland willing to sign the status of forces agreement required by the United States for the permanent deployment of American forces on Polish soil? This requires Poland to give up significant sovereignty. Um, two. Is Poland willing to pay for this? Because the United States isn't paying for this. Any permanent deployment of American troops into Europe is going to require the requesting nation or nations to foot the bill. And we're talking billions of dollars, uh, you know, sustainable over time. Um, and the question is, can Poland uh, afford this? At the same time, they're seeking to rebuild their own military. Uh, at the same time, their economy has been ravaged by the COVID pandemic, at the same time, their economy and the rest of Europe is undergoing extreme stress because of the blowback from the sanctions that they've imposed on Russia. So Stoltenberg can talk big, but, you know, you can talk the talk. I don't think he can walk the walk. We'll see what happens come June. The U.S. promises to give Ukraine the weapons it needs. Ukraine is worried they won't arrive. And Russia says that arms transfers can lead onto the path of direct military confrontation. Well, I mean, the, the fact is, if, if if NATO decides to you know bring these convoys into Poland using NATO resources, um, 
Russia has said we're going to interdict these convoys. That creates the potential for force-on-force confrontation. Um, you know, the bigger the weapon, the more difficult it is to bring over uh, tanks, you know, artillery, things of that nature. Um, is problematic. Uh, the, the the beauty of this whole thing is uh, this is going to be moot very soon uh, because the Ukrainian army is about ready to get slapped around by the largest uh, combined arms offensive the world has seen since the end of the Second World World War. Uh, Russia is on the verge of unleashing um, its phase two operations, and at the conclusion of these operations, there won't be much of a Ukrainian military left to receive weapons. Um, so that's just a, that's just a harsh reality. Uh, the, Ukraine has run out of time. NATO's run out of time. You can talk all you want about sending weapons over. They will probably end up the way that the three S 300, uh, service to air missile batteries provided by, I believe, uh, Slovakia to, uh, Ukraine finished up, um, successfully transported onto Ukrainian soil, uh, shipped to a warehouse in central Ukraine and destroyed by a Russian cruise missile, uh, because, that's what's going to happen to just about everything that's shipped into Ukraine. Let me ask you this, because there are a number of people that have gotten that have that that listen to our conversations over this time. I know I'm going to run long here, but I, I think I need to get an answer to this question. And so at the beginning of this, you were very clear uh, this this could be over in a couple of days that that Russia could turn Ukraine into rubble in about two and a half days. What and now people are saying, well, Scott Ritter said this and it's now we're a month into it. I think what is missing it from in people's understanding is that Russia has never wanted to take over Ukraine. Russia has never wanted to turn Ukraine into rubble, that they have been strategic, they have been surgical, and they are continuing to do so. And that that is what is missing from most of the Western analysis uh, Russia is not bogged down in the mud. The soldiers aren't hungry, and the logistics isn't bad. Yeah, first of all, I never said a couple of days. I've, I've always said that this could be over in, in, in a week or two. Okay, that was my that was my prediction. Okay, uh, if Russia used standard doctrine, I mean, if Russia lined up all of its artillery wheel to wheel like it normally does and like it's about to do, and literally leveled the ground in front of it, killing everything in its path and then hit it with massed armored formations that penetrated deep in the rear, slaughtering everything that gets in its way, uh, using its air force to literally bomb everything into rubble, um, this war would have been over in two weeks, max. But okay. Russia opted not to do that. And that I, I have told you and I've told everybody else, mm-hmm. I was surprised. The, 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 the soft approach took me by surprise. Okay. Um, and then that forced me and everybody else to go back and say, What's Russia intend? Then you listen to what they say. They don't plan on occupying Ukraine. This is not a battle of territorial acquisition. This was supposed to be uh, an easier fight. I think where the Russians got it wrong, and we see evidence of that, is that their intelligence services, particularly the fifth department of the FSB, um, apparently briefed Putin and his leadership that the Russian military uh, received well. They received assurances that some generals said we won't fight. And civilian leaders said, we'll welcome you with open arms. And this turned out to be wrong. And okay. the Russians had to readjust their, their approach. But, you know, the bottom line is Russia is going to win this war. There's literally no debating that. And they're going to win it in a big way. Okay. Scott Ritter, as always, hey, my money's on you, man. 
I, I, I want you to know that. <laughs> I agree because you haven't steered me wrong yet. Scott Ritter, as always, appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's a great piece in Consortium News. New York's prison crisis. Rikers Island has been in the news lately, but the Great Meadow Correctional Facility is even worse. The author writes, much has been written in recent months about the New York City jail at Rikers Island. The violence is overwhelming there. Corruption is endemic. Prisoners die from neglect or from violent acts with regularity. How concerned should we be? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next Next guest, he's a former CIA counterterrorism officer and a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. He is the author of this piece, John Kiriakou. As always, John, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You continue, but the sad truth is that Rikers is not the worst prison in the world, as many believe. It's not even the worst prison in New York. That would be the Grand Meadow Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Washington County, New York. Uh, John, I, I've done a lot of research on uh, prisons in the United States, and I think people would be surprised to know that the Walnut Street Prison uh, in Philadelphia— was erected, was the first prison in the country. It was built, I think, in 1773. And that uh, incarceration in this country started out more as a religious experience. It was where criminals went and were to were to do penance, hence the term penitentiary, and that we have really devolved from that into what we now know to be the Great Meadow Correctional Facility. I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so glad that you started off with the Walnut Street uh, prison, uh, now called the uh, Eastern State Penitentiary. That is where solitary confinement Correct. was invented Correct. In, the, in the early 1800s, with the, the idea being that if you put a man in a, a stone cell by himself— for 24 hours a day and give him only a Bible to read, then he'll read the Bible, he'll absorb the material, and he'll come out a good Christian man. Instead, everyone went insane from the solitary. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first real prison social experiment. The problem is that we really haven't learned our lesson two centuries later. And things are still as bad or worse uh, than what they were at Walnut Street. Talk about the great uh, Meadow facility. You write the, the most recent statistics released by the New York Department of Corrections and Community Supervision show that Great Meadow has the highest rate of suicide of any prison in the state, highest rate of suicide attempts, self-harm, second highest rate of staff violence. This place 
is uh, it run amok. Yeah, it's hell on earth. And we're not talking about Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana here. We're talking about New York State, which is supposed to be so much more progressive than the Deep South. In fact, it's not. And the problem there, the reason why Great Meadow is such a terrible, terrible place is because of staff violence. One of the examples that I used in this piece, Wilmer, uh, was of a a prisoner who uh, went to the cafeteria one day. There's a rule in this prison that you can't sit at a new table until all four seats are taken at the previous table, right? Each table has four seats. All four seats have to be taken, and then you can go to a new table and start the first of four seats there. He didn't see one of the empty seats. And so he started a new table. A guard yelled at him, hey, get up. You can't start a new table. Oh, he said, I'm sorry. I didn't see the, uh, the empty seat. He got up and moved. After he was done eating, he walked out, and the guard pointed at him and motioned for him to come over. This is a normal thing when you're walking out of, out of a cafeteria in prison. They pat you down to make sure you're not stealing food. He said the last thing that he remembered was being pushed over uh, to this area underneath the stairs. Now, the areas underneath stairs in prisons are notorious Mm -hmm. because security cameras don't reach under the stairs. And that's where the guards take you to beat you. He said that was the last thing he remembered. When he woke up, he was being handcuffed. Um, He was bleeding profusely from his face and, uh, and above one of his eyes. They ended up having to call an ambulance because the guard had beaten him so severely, he crushed the man's face, and he had to have reconstructive surgery on his face in addition to stitches over the eye. He made a complaint. His complaint was found to not have any merit because the uh, guard said, oh, he came at me, and I had to beat him in order to protect myself. Uh, They ended up sending him to another prison, and because he had apparently attacked this guard at Great Meadow, he spent his first eight months in that prison in solitary confinement. Now, he's lucky because he lived. I wonder how many of the suicides that take place at Great Meadow aren't really suicides. They're just guards running amok, beating people. And not just beating them, but beating them to death. Gray Meadow also seems to be the prime example of a shift in the mindset of incarceration in this country. Uh, There was a time, I want to say up until the mid to late 70s, when the rehabilitative model was still, I think, the dominant model in the country. You could go... You could be convicted of a crime, you could be sentenced to prison, and it was quite possible that while there, you could learn to read, you could get a high school GED, you could graduate from college, you could learn a trade, you could come out of that experience a uh, someone ready to be a full-functioning, tax-paying citizen in the country. But we've gone from that to a strictly uh, detention model of lock them up and throw away the key. You're exactly right. Until 1978, you could go to prison and really be rehabilitated. You could come out having learned 
electrical work, mm-hmm. how to be a plumber, exactly. or how to operate a computer, or how to repair small engines. And you could actually go to work and be a productive member of, of society. But since then, the, the sole purpose of prison is to punish. You know, I, I was in a low-security prison. Uh, which you think would be where everybody wants to go. But it was no better than any place else. I was astounded when I got there at the number of people who just simply could not read and write. They just mm-hmm. couldn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea is in order to qualify for good behavior time off, um, up to 15% of your overall uh, sentence, you have to either be working on a GED, get a GED, or already have a high school diploma. Well, it's shocking how many guys go through the GED or the pre-GED process, finish the whole thing, and then fail, and then just keep taking it over and over and over again because the prison uh, administration is so bad that they can't even teach people the basics of reading. You know, they have the nerve to call this thing the education department. They don't educate anybody. And in fact, they don't teach any of the classes. It's all other prisoners who teach these classes. In my very first week in prison, I went to the uh, head of the library and I said, listen, um, I've, got a, I've got a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern studies. I have a master's degree in legislative affairs, and I finished my Ph.D. coursework in uh, international affairs. If you want me to teach a class, I'm happy to teach a class. And he says, he looks right at me and he says, Kiriaku, if I want you to teach an effing class, I'll ask you to teach an effing class. You're going to be a janitor. And he made me a janitor. And so, you know, I would help guys when they they asked me for help. I would write people's appeals and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But, but, uh, they they don't uh, they don't really care if you learn how to read or if you fail the GED and take it four times or five times. They don't care if when you get out you go back to your neighborhood and you sell drugs again because it's the only thing you know how to do because they haven't taught you a skill. They just don't care. How much of that lack of interest, compassion, or caring has to do with the privatization of prisons and the the business model that they get paid, that many facilities get paid by the fill, per person, per filled bed, and that those empty beds result in loss of profit? Oh, you raise a very important point here. Uh, and in, in private prisons, they only make money when the prisons are full. You know, they can, they can cut costs on food, reduce it to animal-grade food instead of human-grade food. That'll save them a few dollars. They can cut medications, um, you know, not just to give you generics, but to not prescribe medications for you. That'll save them a few dollars. But where they really make their money is when every bed is full and people are serving the longest possible sentences. That's how it's profitable for them. So the whole business model is flawed. It's not just that the Supreme Court said that the prison system doesn't have to educate its prisoners. It's not just that the Federal Bureau of Prisons decided to phase out all of these training courses in order to save money. It's the fact that, I hate to say it, but 
that capitalism has turned this into a no-win situation for people who really do want to make themselves better people, to improve their lives. You know, I met a lot of people, and I know that you've, you've met similar people who say, wow, I really screwed up. I, I, I need to get my act together and make something of my life. Right. And then they're just not able to because the system won't allow it. And when you throw, you, you mentioned the, the illiteracy rate or level in prison, illiteracy, which then, of course, leads to poverty, that's right. what feeds and, and fuels the, the school-to-prison pipeline. It's not an inherent or innate uh, criminality amongst a group of people. The group of people, are you tend to commit crime where you are, you commit crime against those that are closest to you, and it has to do with poverty, and poverty in many instances is controlled by illiteracy. John Kiriakou, Consortium News piece, New York's prison crisis, Rikers Island has been in the news lately, but the great Meadow Correctional Facility is even worse. As always, John, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much for covering these issues. It was a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's an article, uh, as Haitian migration routes change, compassion is tested in Florida Keys. On the morning of March 14th, Monroe County Sheriff's deputies and U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents arrived on Sumlin Key, 30 miles northeast of Key West. About 130 migrants had come ashore. The landing, one of four major migrant arrivals in the Florida Keys since January, represents the latest challenge for federal and local authorities trying to control the flow of undocumented immigrants entering the United States, particularly those coming from Haiti. What does this change in route for Haitian immigrants indicate? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a journalist and editor at Haiti Liberté. He is Kim Ives. Kim, welcome back. Thank you. Well, so let, let me start with the, the wet feet, dry feet policy or the wet foot, dry foot policy was the name given to a uh, 1995 uh, law that dealt with Cuban, the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1996 that said anyone who emigrated from Cuba and entered the U.S. would be allowed to pursue residency if they were able to set one dry foot on American soil. That ended in 2017. But talk about that and why Haitians were never given the same benefit. Is that a relevant question? Yes, yes, it is. Now, this has been, uh, of course, the, the, the great dichotomy in uh, Miami in particular uh, over the past uh, four decades, uh, back in the 1980s. Um, I worked on a film called Better Came, which was really about the the flood of boat people, as they came to be called, uh, that began around that time. And um, it was uh, always contrasted 
to the Cuban migrations, which were less but uh, much more warmly received. And, and that was really where the wet foot, dry foot uh, uh, term was, was first coined back mm-hmm. in, the, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, so it, it was really a, a, a stark contrast between the reception uh, and it was often put on racial terms, that is, these were black refugees primarily from Haiti and white refugees primarily from Cuba. But uh, we feel uh, we felt in, in, um, at, in Haiti Progre at the day and today at Haiti Liberté that, you know, it's primarily political. Of course, if uh, Haiti were a, uh, a, a, a country which were socialist, uh, they would probably receive them and say, you know, you are uh, welcome here and, you know, try to form them into some sort of a, a, a counter a revolutionary force here in the States. And uh, so over the course of these past uh, four decades, uh, this uh, migration of boat people descended uh, in numbers a great deal because the U.S. deployed uh, the Coast Guard to make a sort of iron perimeter around Haiti uh, to stop the the ships coming up uh, through the Bahamas uh, 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 via uh, Cuba as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also uh, pushed the government to allow them to go into Haitian waters to uh, uh, try to get uh, the people um, before they even get into international oceans. You mean the United States uh, government, the United States yeah. government allowed the Coast Guard to go into Haitian waters? Well, the Haitian allowed the, well, the Haitian government, uh, okay, by pressure uh, from the, the from the United States. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. So, um, so basically, uh, not only are they interdicting Haitians on the high seas in international waters, but also even within Haitian territorial waters. So, so what has brought about this change in route, or 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 has there actually is this actually a change in route? Well, yes. I mean, uh, there there are sort of alternating. There are two alternating routes. One comes up through uh, the Mexico, essentially, and we we saw this, of course, at mm-hmm. Del Rio mm-hmm. uh, this past autumn, uh, where you know thousands of people were stopped there, and there are many more thousands in Tijuana, et cetera, who have come up via the Panamerian Highway, gotten through the Darien Gap, which is that huge jungle which uh, separates Panama and Colombia, and then come up through uh, Central America, and they arrive at the border. And uh, this has really been heavily fortified, as we know, uh, even under Biden, carrying on Trump's policies. And they uh, have been stopping uh, tens of thousands of people there. So that means it shifts over to the water route, uh, what it were, was the route of the boat people, and uh, they come up primarily through the Bahamas, which, as people may know, uh, 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 Turks and Caicos and the Bahamas are just north of the uh, Haitian uh, northern coast, and then they kind of island hop up through there. Now, many of them, there were, like in the first two months of this year, for example, there were uh, about 26,000 uh, Haitians who, who uh, were deported back to uh, Haiti, but uh, many of them came up uh, uh, through the um, 
uh, islands there. These are the Bahamas, Cuba, Turks and Caicos again. And uh, oh, 20,000 of them uh, came up that way. And about 5,000, 6,000 of them came up only through um, uh, the, the other uh, avenue. So you see this has become once again the new the new um, uh, approach uh, with the boat people, but it's of course very hazardous because uh, you, uh, I mean, as the other is also, but you can drown and many, many do drown uh, mm-hmm. at sea because the, the, the waters uh, between uh, Haiti and uh, Florida are, are very terrible. And, and the boats are not the strongest boats uh, right. to be right. made or not yeah. designed to be making journeys such as these. No, as as the, the Washington Post article pointed out, uh, many of the people, um, many of the boats uh, are, are made out of uh, tree trunks are the mast. Uh, the, the, the sails are often just patched together from, I think they talked about a parachute uh, and other things, uh, which is what make up um, primarily the boats that you'll see off the Haitian northern coast in Port of Pay or Cape Haitian. So the uh, boats of, from Haiti are, are very rudimentary, very uh, uh, patched together, uh, very uh, flimsy, as they often were, uh, became almost a um, cliche uh, that was used, flimsy uh, boats that came from uh, the uh, northern coast primarily of Haiti to get to uh, Miami. And uh, so that's really where the wet foot, dry foot, phrase came from mm-hmm. was whether they could actually get to land or not. Most of them did perish uh, often uh, on, on route. And so this has been uh, why um, many began to go up through Latin America instead of trying to uh, take their chances on the ocean. There's a story in in your uh, paper, uh, Haiti Liberté, Dominican Republic or DR banks complicit in the death of Moise. Millions of dollars laundered in the Dominican Republic may reveal the perpetrators of the assassination of Jovenel Moise. Uh, If you could uh, please, Kim Eves, speak to this. Well, yes, uh, this is, of course, one more element to this uh, ongoing mystery nine months ago uh, of uh, the assassination of Jovenel Moise, uh, the magnicide which was carried out um, in front of the eyes of the world uh, and has up until now gone completely unsolved. Um, Even though there are some 40 people uh, in jail in Haiti, um, and uh, it, nonetheless, it remains unknown uh, who actually masterminded and financed this. But uh, in what appears to be an almost inadvertent uh, slip, uh, one of Haiti's foremost money laundering um, uh, experts, a, a fellow called Jose Manuel Patin Muniz, uh, was on a show on April 1st, and he, he, he said that there were $20 million which were laundered through Dominican banks uh, for this assassination. Now, you know, we still don't know who these uh, uh, funders were, and uh, we immediately, when we got wind of this, because 
people started to call us and say, what's, what's this all about? We tried to call Patin. Uh, he, I reached him at one point and he, he said, okay, call me back at 530. I'm busy right now, but until now, despite 20 phone calls, he's apparently uh, ducking my calls and, and, and not uh, responding. Now, uh, we've been told that this is because he's under pressure from uh, what one of our uh, sources said by the Dominican mafia. So it, this looks like it, it is a, a hugely international uh, plot to kill uh, Jovenel Moise. We have uh, the U.S. seems uh, to have some uh, role in the thing, or at least uh, maybe awareness of it, because they're holding two of the um, people who were involved in this, uh, a fellow called Manuel Palacios Palacios, who was one of the Colombian mercenaries who managed to escape, and another one who is a Haitian former drug trafficker, a guy called Rodolf Jarre, J-A-A-R, who uh, was picked up in the Dominican Republic uh, at the beginning of the year in January. So uh, you have the Americans holding some. There's one guy, uh, a former uh, Fami Lavalas senator called John Joel Joseph, who's being held in uh, Jamaica and, uh, of course, in Haiti. So we're really... uh, Following the money, of course, is going to give the clues as to who was really behind this. And apparently, uh, Patin, after saying this statement on uh, Dominican television, is now clamming up. So uh, we're very. Do you know where where is Mr. Patin now? Is he in Haiti? Is he where? Where is he? He's in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Uh, he's, he's based in the Dominican Republic. But he was, you know, he's apparently U.S. trained. You know, he went to a, a college, a business school up in uh, Michigan. Mm-hmm. He was working for Citibank in anti-money laundering compliance uh, back uh, uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But he's now in the Dominican Republic and is, is fairly well known, is fairly uh, prominent in, in, in this role. So having him, uh, you know, give us more information on how he came by this information and, and who are the, the funders of this $20 million is uh, of great interest to us. Gotcha. Well, please keep, keep us posted as more of this uh, develops. And uh, when you are finally able to make uh, contact with him, uh, and hopefully he'll be alive long enough for you to do that, uh, we, we greatly, greatly appreciate it and look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Texas to send buses of undocumented immigrants to the U.S. Capitol if they're willing to go, according to Texas Governor Greg Abbott. What is this all about? 
For insight, we turn to our next guest. We're joined by the executive director of Alianza Americas, Oscar Chacon. Oscar, as always, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And we're joined by a San Antonio-based specialist in immigration law as certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. He currently works on various family-based and employment-based immigration law cases, as well as deportation cases. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos, as always, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Abbott told reporters the plan is a response to the Biden administration's recent announcement that it will be lifting a pandemic public health order next month, a decision that could significantly increase the number of migrants crossing the border. The order known as Title 42 has effectively blocked most migrants from entering the U.S. and seeking asylum for the past two years. Let me start with you, Oscar. When you heard that uh, Greg Abbott was going to put people on buses, and I also hear fly people into Washington, D.C., what was your thought? What was your reaction to this? (laughs) Well, in reactions in multiple ways. Uh, On one hand, I am sure that people that are intending to get to the Washington, D.C. area will be happy to get a free (laughs) ride to the place they need to get to. Let's remember that one of the largest Central American immigrant populations in the U.S. resides precisely in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest. I mean, the other reaction is, you know, what else is new? Let's remember that conservative pro-mega corporate interest political forces have reaped electoral gains by attacking newcomers to the USA from day one in the founding of this nation. And in just in the past 40 years, in more precisely beginning in the 1990s, Republicans discovered the electoral benefits of attacking Mexicans, Latin Americans, and other non-white immigrants, you know, across the board. Uh, The 1994 gubernatorial election in California wrote the recent handbook about this. And I see, obviously, what Abbott is doing is simply copycatting what uh, was brought to the national presidential level by Donald Trump. And they are absolutely bound to make this a central issue in Republican campaigns across the nation in the context of the upcoming November election. Oscar, same question to you with this additional point. When I heard Abbott speak, And what I took away from this was his saying, oh, okay, Joe Biden, uh, you want to do away with Title 42. That means I'm going to have a whole bunch of people coming across my border. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them to you. That's what I took away from this, Carlos Castaneda. Indeed, you took away exactly what Greg Abbott was doing and what he wanted other people to take away. It was, okay, you want to take care of this? Here. Have at it. Now, I am very much with Oscar in that many people who are crossing the border do have family members or plans to stay somewhere in the northeastern United States. So to an extent, that could help. But one important thing that I took away from some of the governor's comments is that he later stressed that any transported migrants would have to be transported voluntarily because when this was first announced, Mm -hmm. there was initial outcry as to by what authority the governor of the state of Texas could be transporting individuals in interstate commerce when they don't have custody over them exactly. 
And this actually led me, because I started to investigate this myself, as to some of the constitutionality involving different states transporting individuals, mainly in terms of, shall we say, a state prison and having people even though they were processed in one state, serving time in another state prison's facilities. And that was interesting. But rather than get too far off our current topic, I will just say that, as Oscar said, this really in some ways raises the political stakes of this matter. And indeed, given how President Biden has already faced a little bit of opposition from some of his own party members in the Senate, to ending Title 42, the fact that this remains a political football even a year after Biden's inauguration continues to be something that affects not only the Democratic Party, but on my end, makes me wonder what are some of the changes that are going to be coming my way as the Biden administration continues grappling with this politically thorny issue that is indeed ultimately a humanitarian one at its core. Carlos, if you could explain Title 42, and then Oscar, I'm going to ask you to discuss your uh, your organization, Alianza Americas, uh, welcomes the reported decision to end Title 42. So, Carlos, if you could explain Title 42, and then Oscar, I'll ask you to explain why Alianza Americas supports uh, the determination of it. Go ahead, uh, Carlos. Yes. Title 42 is a long-standing starting part of federal law that applies to situations involving public health emergencies. And in this case, we had a CDC order that said that because of the public health emergency due to COVID, it was recommended that essentially certain individuals not enter the United States. And this was used by the Trump administration to deny thousands upon thousands of people their lawful, lawful uh, procedures that they were supposed to go through in order to see if they would have a chance of fighting an immigration case in the United States, primarily an asylum case. And so a good many people were turned away from the border without being subjected to the lawful due process as specified in congressionally passed laws mm-hmm, with the excuse that there was It was for public health reasons. And even during the Trump administration, Title 42 was applied in a pretty inconsistent way. And that continued with the Biden administration, despite their decisions to decrease the use of it and create certain exceptions, including for unaccompanied alien children. So Alianza Americas is a network of migrant-led organizations working in the U.S. and transnationally to create an inclusive, equitable, and sustainable way of life for communities across North, Central, and South America. Why uh, has your organization taken the position that you support the end or the ending of Title 42, and you're calling upon the administration to restore asylum in an orderly and humane manner? Well, first of all, let me just make it very clear. I mean, we were very critical of the Donald Donald Trump administration invoking Title 42 to essentially achieve a goal that he had sought uh, to achieve even before he invoked Title 42, and that is essentially to end the practice of allowing people to apply for humanitarian protection upon their arrival at the U.S. southern border. Because of that reason alone, you know, we welcome the final termination of this program, which ironically, it is something that when Biden was a candidate, he promised he would do as soon as he became president, uh, which he didn't. You know, it's taken more than a year 
for this announcement to be made. But let me also make it very clear. Above and beyond ending Title 42, what Alianza Americas and its member organizations call for is a far more rational, evidence-based approach on what to do with people coming into our southern border. The bottom line is many of them are coming to our border because of a combination of deadly factors, including violence, including ever-worst weather-related events, uh, more authoritarian forms of government coming into place in different countries south of our border, and, of course, lack of economic opportunity. All these would not be well served just by ending Title 42. All these realities would be better served if this were a moment for the nation to completely reorient its policies and understand that just as we are showing generosity, welcoming attitudes to people from Ukraine, we should also extend the same to other people who have no less merit in as far as why they are coming to our country. So our applauding the decision to end Title 42 comes also with this clarification I just made, which I think it's very important to understand because it would not be really a good outcome if as a result of ending Title 42, we simply go back to immediately rejecting applications for humanitarian protection and immediately sending people back to the very places they are fleeing from. And Carlos, you are an attorney. You deal with uh, family-based, employment-based, and deportation cases. What are the practical, on-the-ground realities that you see happening if the Biden administration ends Title 42? In a nutshell, it would at least initially lead to an increase in the number of cases being processed by immigration authorities. And that is this. People who are apprehended at the border are then taken to a detention center, processed, and then one of three things happens. One, it's concluded that they are a very low risk and may be giving a parole or release on recognizance. Two, they are administered a credible fear interview after a couple of weeks of waiting by an asylum officer of USCIS, the immigration agency focused on the benefit side of immigration law. And depending on the outcome of that decision, maybe they are then deported sometime later or in very rare circumstances of major, situ- major, shall we say, mm, in very rare circumstances, a person is released for a short time before they are eventually removed from the United States. So initially, we would have a lot more individuals with ICE having to deal with. What the Biden administration, and this is very important for this debate, and we haven't had a chance to discuss it yet, what the Biden administration has been thinking of doing for a while, and most recently they've been uh, putting out more potential regulations to that effect, is finding a way to make the processing of these individuals occur even faster. And part of that is granting greater powers to the asylum officers of USCIS, including giving them the ability to grant asylum directly, which is a power that they have previously not had, except in the case of individuals applying for asylum directly with USCIS after they have been released from detention. And also trying to expedite how quickly a person's case is processed with the immigration court judges, which I have mixed feelings on, but we can discuss at another moment. 
Carlos Castaneda and Oscar Chacon. Gentlemen, both, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And uh, we'll bring you back so that we can get into further detail uh, on these issues uh, at another point. Thank you both so much. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik, thank you for allowing my voice into your space. On behalf of uh, myself, I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow with my partner, Garland Nixon, on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. 